I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Today, I speak with Dave Carroll, singer, songwriter, and storyteller. Dave was catapulted onto the international stage in 2009 after he created the music video called United Breaks Guitars. It was in response to United Airlines after they refused to help pay for his guitar that got broken en route to a show. We chat about storytelling, how his video launched him a whole new career path, what organizations need to know about customer service, and in Soul Sister Conversations fashion, we talk fate, serendipity, and life purpose. And an extra bonus, Dave sings a song from his new album called Until One Day, which is available now. Dave Carroll, welcome to Soul Sister Conversations. Thanks, Dana. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, I'm delighted to have this conversation because I've been following you for a while, like in a non-stalkerish sort of way. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, obviously um, knowing you when you flew onto the international scene with uh, your United Breaks Guitars um, video, but we'll talk about that in a second. But um, for anybody who might know, uh, you are an award-winning singer, songwriter, professional speaker, author, and social media innovator based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And you began your career with your brother, Don, in the band Sons of Maxwell. And you have been enjoying success as a solo artist since 2008. And if people didn't know you from being a musician, as I said, they certainly might have come to know you when you were, um, your, your music video went viral in 2009. After you took a flight on United Airlines, they broke your Taylor guitar and you decided to create a song and a video around it. And over 150 million people have viewed that. Does that seem wild to you? It's uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. It is. It is unbelievable. And, um, but we'll get into that in a minute. But how, how did you get in the music industry? So, Don and I, uh, uh, our band is named Sons of Maxwell after our dad, Max. And so uh, we were attending Carleton University and we, the, the university was connected by tunnels and the acoustics are always, always good in a tunnel. Everyone sounds better with reverb. And so uh, we would be up too late and they would say, go down to the tunnels and stop disturbing us with your music. So we would go down there and, and then we entered a talent contest. We tied for first place and uh, they paid us $50. So we became professionals. And uh, the, the rest is history. <laughs> well, so you weren't actually playing music your whole life or from a musical background? No, our, we, we credit our dad a lot, not just with the name, but uh, Don and I shared a bedroom when we were growing up and our dad would come in when we were quite small and he would bring his guitar in and he only really knew like three or four chords. And his policy was always, if you don't know the music, sing louder. And if you don't know the words, play louder, but don't let those details <laughs> get in the way of stopping it. So, uh, yeah, we... we Loved music and appreciated it, but we didn't really start till we were in university. And you call yourself a storyteller. Do you come from a storytelling background in terms of like your parents or grandparents, or how do you how do you relate to storytelling? No, in nothing in the formal sense, but uh, uh, people in my family are are great storytellers. Uh, Don's a very good storyteller, and and uh, I've always appreciated a good a good yarn. Mm. And. Like so many people I know, um, or young people, they would love to pursue a music career. You know, lots of people, you know, just resonate with music. Do you have any advice for anybody who wants to break into the scene? 
Well, it's it's a tough go. You, nobody ever gets into it for money, or no one intelligent ever does it for the money. But uh, uh, we had a family friend when we were growing up. Uh, he was he was in his seventies when Don and I were uh, probably in our very early twenties, and uh, we had just started playing. And our mom was showcasing us to all her friends, like go over and see Mr. Kremen and sing a song for him. So we did that, and he really liked it. And he sort of said, uh, "One thing I've always learned, fellows, is that uh, here's two pieces of advice." Learn to play music and you'll be welcome everywhere you go and marry a French girl and settle down. That was his two pieces of advice. And, <laughs> and I know one of those two happened. Did the second one happen? My wife took French immersion. So I think I, uh, that counts for something. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah. So um, my advice, I guess, for people getting into the business is to measure your expectations, but do it for the love of it and enjoy the process and, uh, and yeah, believe in yourself. And, and, uh, yeah, I played many, many, uh, what would be considered awful shows where there's nobody there and, and uh, there's maybe one or two people that are paying attention. And I always played to the one or two who were paying attention and realized that I was there to serve them and practice and get better and take advantage of the opportunity every time I hit the stage. So there, there are no really bad gigs. There's just learning experiences. Mm. So when you are starting to pursue that and you are, you know, doing the bad gigs and not playing to filled rooms, um, were you doing it just as a fun hobby or did you actually have the intention of, let me see if I can make a go with this in the music industry? Well, like I said, when we entered our, the talent contest and they paid us $50, I did consider myself a professional. Like somebody, I got $25 to do something I was doing for free and loving it anyway. So mm -hmm. I thought there's gotta be more of this somewhere. Right. <laughs> so at the time, the minimum wage probably when I was in university was probably eight or nine bucks or something like that. And even on my bad gigs, I get 60 bucks for playing uh, three hours on a Wednesday night or something like that. And that worked out to if I showed up uh, late and left early, that would be like $10 an hour. And uh, to me, that seemed like a pretty good deal. Yeah, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And well, thank you for all that advice and sort of insight, because I, I just know and I have people who have asked me about, you know, their children pursuing paths and you know, parents want them to go to university and kids are saying, I want to do the music scene. So I was curious from, uh, from your perspective um, for children who, who, you know, so many people love the music industry, love being creative. Um, so thanks for that mm -hmm. sort of insight. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the part of the main reason, you know, we're talking today is I wanted to chat with you about this whole idea of storytelling and customer service and you have a front row seat to all of that because of an experience that you had back in 2008 when you flew United Airlines and like I said you had then end up creating a, a video and a song in response to that but can you take us back to 2008 when you're taking that flight what happened to you for anybody who doesn't know and this is all detailed in your book uh, called United Breaks Guitars. Yeah uh, Don and I were <clears throat> we had been playing for I don't know 17-18 years at the time and and uh, we ended up uh, going to a showcase. We were playing to an audience full of buyers in Ottawa, and they were from all over the place. And you were hoping that, uh, like every act that day, if you play for 20 minutes, they like you enough to hire you and bring you places. And after our uh, showcase, a, a guy from the University of Nebraska came up and said, would you like to uh, come and play some shows in Nebraska? And we said yes. And so we had six shows lined up, and um, we flew United Airlines on March 31st, 2008. And... Uh, from Halifax and I'd never flown with them before, but uh, we landed in Chicago to D plane and somebody saw baggage handlers throwing our guitars outside. 
<clears throat> and it turned out that uh, my Taylor guitar, which I bought for $3,500 when I didn't have $3,500, was really badly damaged. And uh, to make a long story short, the airline didn't want to take any responsibility for it. And I was committed to that they would take some responsibility for it. And so I tried for better part of nine months to try and get somebody to do that. And eventually I heard from a customer service rep named Ms. Earlwig out of Chicago. And uh, she was very professional at her job, but she wouldn't take any responsibility and ultimately said that because I didn't open a claim within 24 hours back in, in uh, Omaha, that uh, they weren't responsible. That was their policy. So I responded to her that I had a different policy as a musician. Uh, I had other tools at my disposal than just suing them as a lawyer might. I would write three songs and make three videos about uh, my experience and post each of these unique songs and videos on YouTube, uh, this new thing called YouTube that I'd heard about. And my goal was going to be to get 1 million views in the next year with all three videos combined. And uh, and so that's what I did. I wrote this, uh, all three songs and made three videos, but only one at a time. You can only do one thing at a time. And so I made the first song and the first video. And uh, I wrote the second song at the time that the, uh, when we released that first video, the second song was already written, but not, uh, no video for it. Mm. And uh, it got popular yeah, really, really quickly. I posted it to YouTube and it, it uh, ended up becoming a viral hit, which it just, it's not a big number uh, to be viral. It has to go up exponentially, technically by definition. And so it was doing that and, it, and I got my 1 million views in four days uh, on YouTube. And it was, it was big news because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons, but people were sort of, sort of still examining what social media meant and what kind of uh, potential it would have. And so that was a good example of a video that uh, wasn't just uh, a cat flushing a toilet. It, it was a message embedded in music and it was, it was completely organic. And that, so it's been studied a lot that way. Hmm. What did you make of it that it actually started to do what you wanted it to do? <clears throat> well, uh, I was I was as surprised as anybody else because uh, I didn't know what what would happen. And uh, in fact, I just threw out the number a million views because it seemed like a big number, and I thought I might need three chances at it. And here it was four days later. I had a million views, and it was effortless. And that's what social media sort of represented that maybe now there was this uh, democratization of of the music industry where it, it was merit-based. If you had something that made people want to watch it and tell their friends about it, you didn't need to have the right agent and right manager and and other people that were that tend to stand as impediments to success of so many bands because they're they're favoring their own or that sort of thing. I thought it was the most amazing and awesome thing ever. Wow. Yeah, it, it's pretty incredible. And this was, like you say, this was at the beginning of social media really breaking. I don't, I, I'm trying to recall even then, I guess the platforms were around Facebook and so on, but they really don't have the the teeth that they, they do today. And that's um, pretty amazing because Google has considered it one of its, of its most important videos in history. Mm. Like you, Dave Carroll from the East Coast did that. Like, what do you make of this? It still kind of make you think, wow, that happened. Yeah. And and so that that quote came in at about, um, I guess, Google bought YouTube at about the five year mark. There was some some sort of anniversary there. And and, uh, and that was around the same time that United Breaks Guitars had come out. So that at the time, somebody from from Google had made that quote saying it was one of the most important videos in their history at the time. And and I think um after hearing and speaking to so many different people in the last 10 years that are in that space, 
who feel that way, I, I can sort of get my head around it and I can see why without take without having an ego explode. Mm -hmm. It was, I was the right, uh, did the right thing at the right time. And it was a perfect storm of conditions. And it's, uh, I think it's a good case study on what's possible if you show up with the right intention and you have a little bit of luck and commitment and, uh, yeah, it's, a. Uh, yeah. It's and a how long after did it make its way up the United Airlines chain? Cause I actually remember seeing you on the view, mm -hmm. um, way, way back when, uh, talking about this and you, you have appeared on other shows. How, how long did it take when it hit 1 million views? Did then, did somehow reach United before, did you have to do anything or did it reach them before you reached them? <laughs> no. And, and that's one of the interesting aspects too, about uh, social media and what it meant at the time and where this could go, because I had spent nine months trying to get someone on the phone and, and finding that numbers were leading to nowhere, that the number would be changed. When I finally got to somebody, this awesome, uh, awesomely frustrating customer service maze and social media. Now all of a sudden was, I, I shouted my, problem to the world through the window of YouTube and the company and people were coming to me to, to, uh, address it. it. That was unheard of. No companies had never called people when, when you just effortlessly said, I have a problem with your product. And that that's what happened. So on the day that it hit a million, which was only four days after releasing the video, I had a conference call with a senior manager at United and, um, we didn't really solve anything in the call, but they didn't say, I'm sorry. That was the one thing I noticed. They said it was regretful and they were very careful in their language because I imagine they had a lawyer in the room with them telling them, don't say you're sorry. And that implies responsibility. And, and that's the old school way that businesses were doing things. But, um, I think, uh, saying you're sorry is the least expensive way to solve a problem. And if you say it authentically, you can really diffuse a, uh, confrontational situation. And so they didn't, they didn't say sorry. And, we spoke that week and uh, they said uh, they would give $5,000 to the Thelonious Monk Jazz School in my name. Uh, that's what they did shortly after that conversation. And we never really uh, became the friends that I hope we could become, but that's what it is. Oh, really? And did they ever end up paying for your guitar? No. Uh, and I said they didn't have to. I, I said, uh, these videos are not a negotiation tactic to try and get you to pay for this thing, you promised me that you were not going to do anything else. So I promised you, I'm going to do three songs and three videos. So, uh, the second song was already written, as I mentioned. So mm -hmm. that, that was done. Video was coming. And the third song though, was not written yet. And I had suggested, uh, I had an in-person meeting with three vice presidents at, uh, Chicago's O'Hare. And, um, I'm, I said, if you want to change a policy that was not great for customers, I'll include that, uh, in the third song and we can wrap it up. Uh, together sort of as a co-write and I don't right. think we took it seriously and and that never happened so I completed the trilogy without their cooperation hmm. and the the, it, the impact that you had on United Airlines was great though they had a you know a shares or the stock dipped on them and actually was quite costly yeah um, so there's a caveat there the BBC and the Economist uh, reported that my video was re responsible for a 10% or $180 million market cap drop, which sent ripples around the world because now one customer could actually affect the profitability or bottom line of one of the world's biggest brands. And uh, so that was worth people starting to pay attention to what one customer could do if you don't pay attention to a problem. 
But mm. uh, other people have studied this and it probably wasn't responsible for a 10% drop. It probably had some kind of a, an effect on it, but all the airlines had sort of gone down at around the same time. But uh, it's also another case study on branding and perception that your brand is the sum of the conversations being had about you. It's not necessarily based in fact. And uh, the perception around the world was that that video tanked their stock by 10%. So in, in a sense, it, that's exactly what happened. So branding is a sum of the conversations ha- conversations happening around you. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. 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 You don't control, you don't control your brand anymore in the past. I guess if you had enough money and you could control the media and the, and the message, if you were the only one speaking, you said the same thing, you could probably get people to say it back to you. But now with the ability for people to have their own voice, you, you actually have to back up what you say and be, be the brand that you say you are, because the worst thing you could ever do is to promote yourself on social media or in any form and be exposed to uh, incongruencies. Hmm. What did this video going viral teach you? Uh, About uh, on the music side, probably continuing to believe in myself. So for 20 years at at the time, we had had great gigs and and bad gigs and and lots of reasons why we could say, well, uh, there's really no point in going forward. And that sort of thing. But I, I always believed that I was writing good material, that we performed it well, that we worked in the service of the the fans and the people who bought it, and that something good someday would happen if you stay in the game and you, you bring that A game and your intention uh, with you everywhere. And I had no idea that there would be a thing called social media or that this would happen. It's kind of a bizarre way to have a career boost uh, when you think you're going to maybe do it on a r- regular radio maybe get a radio hit or get a song in a movie or something. I didn't know it would happen this way, but that's the way life is. If you, if you, you may not ever know how things are going to work out, but if you stay in the game, things happen. Yeah. It's pretty incredible to think about what's possible um, that you, like, you could never have predicted that this is how you would have gotten a career boost or, or shift um, your path in some way. How, how has this whole experience uh, changed your life? Well, it's, I think some people around me, the people close to me get tired of hearing the words United Breaks Guitars because everything <laughs> seems to come back to that. There's, there's a connection to every aspect. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at the time when I released United Breaks Guitars, Don and I had been traveling musicians as indie artists with all the frustrating things that go with that and all the bonuses. But we had decided that uh, maybe it was time to stop being just musicians and uh, because, uh for, for a bunch of reasons, but including the fact that my wife and I, uh, uh, Jill got pregnant for Flynn, our, our oldest, and I didn't want to be a thousand miles away playing another pub show, waiting for another symphony gig or another something like that. And, uh, and so we had been volunteer firefighters here at Station 41 in Waverly, Nova Scotia, and uh, they put out a recruitment in Halifax. And so we both, both applied to be full-time firefighters and a thousand people applied and only 30 got hired in the first round and Don was one of them and I wasn't. And uh, so he took a job and I, I had this uh, solo record I was going to be releasing anyway. And he and I would play the odd show and I decided I had this extra time. So I'm going to do this thing called United Breaks Guitars that I had envisioned and uh, in that, in that year off, cause they said they may hire me the next year. And, uh, and then everything went crazy. And so, um, that, that trajectory changed immediately. And uh, I had never been a speaker before, even on stage, Don did most of the speaking uh, between songs and stuff. So uh, I was asked 
to tell my story at a at a big event in in the U.S. and uh, I instantly kind of like our first talent show gig. Uh, someone paid me to tell the story, and I said, "Oh, well, I guess I'm a professional speaker now." And and I started speaking, and I've since been to 34 countries in the world, from Fortune 100 companies like Coca-Cola to not-for-profits uh, and uh, like Shelter Nova Scotia for homeless homeless people. And yeah. and the story works everywhere because it's it's a universal message. Absolutely. D- does it ever feel like fate to you? Like it's as I'm listening to you unfold this story and, and you're kind of deciding we want to be closer to home and your brother gets hired um, as a firefighter and you did. And then there's this happened to be this lull. And then you create this song that boosts you in a whole other completely different direction. Do you ever think about that? All the time. Um, <laughs> so I've, yeah. I've read um, uh, Hay House books. I'm sure you're familiar with Hay House. And- yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, and you are a Hay House author. I am. So th- I guess do you want to get into that? Uh, that yeah, you sure? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I this is about the the idea of serendipity and fate and full circle mm-hmm. stuff. And so I had been a big fan of Wayne Dyer's for a long time. I was I really liked the way he uh, brought his messages together and whatever. So I've, I'd been a fan of Wayne's, and I remember thinking uh, it it'd be nice if. If I ever was going to write a book, it'd be nice to be published by Hay House, but I don't know what I would say. And uh, and I read Wayne's book, The Power of Intention, and I thought that was a really good book. And someone said, well, if you like that, you might want to try this book by Eckhart Tolle. And Eckhart Tolle wrote the book, The Power of Now, about living in the present moment. Mm-hmm. So I read that book and and I thought, this is really, this is a great book. And, um, and I felt inspired to try and write a song about it. So I wrote a song called Now, about the uh, based on the power of now, and uh, I put that song on my uh, my first solo CD around 2008, and I sent a copy to Wayne Dyer down in Florida to say thanks for the inspiration. Your book led me to this, and the, and and all that stuff. And I never heard anything from him because he never returned anyone's messages because he was probably too popular, and and uh, that's just the way it was. But I also sent a, a the CD to Vancouver where. Uh, Constance Kello, uh, she's the publisher of Eckhart Tolle. And uh, I was in Timmins, Ontario, about to release my CD that week. And I got this random phone message from Constance Kello. And she says, Dave, uh, I'm with Namaste Publishing. I, I publish Eckhart Tolle. And I have to say, we're over, we're over the moon with your song now. It encapsulates everything he said in his two books. He sold 15 million books. He is uh, on a 10-week series with Oprah. And he's on week seven and I'm going to Chicago this week and I'm going to give Oprah Winfrey your CD. And I think she's going to share your song with the world. Wow. And yeah, so I know what it's like for Oprah to maybe going to say your name next week, but that didn't happen. (laughs) uh, She took it to Chicago. I called uh, her the next week. I was waiting, you know, you can imagine I was waiting uh, until the earliest possible moment. And she said, uh, I, uh, I gave it to a producer. The next week I called back. I said, did uh, you hear anything back? She said, Dave, it's in the universe's hands now because they're a very, uh, 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 that kind of publisher, right? So Right, exactly. So I felt like saying. I get it. Yeah. So I'm like, Constance, the universe is telling me you should make a follow-up call. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't hear anything uh, and it never really happened. But, um, But then United Breaks Guitars happens. And I find myself, I'm doing one of my very first speaking gigs in Boston, and I'm reading Wayne Dyer's book, Excuses Be Gone. Mm-hmm. And in it, he gives a shout out to his daughter's handbag business. 
uh, Urban Junket, and she lives in San Diego. And and so I wanted him to hear that song now. I thought he won't respond, but she will respond because she's starting a business. Everyone who starts a business responds to everybody. So I sent her a message saying, I'm a big fan of your dad's. He inspired the song called Now. I'd love if you could share it with him. And I also did this thing called United Breaks Guitars. And she wrote back uh, almost immediately, immediately and said, I love United Breaks Guitars. I live in San Diego. That's where they make the Taylor plant is just not far from San Diego. My dad's coming from uh, Hawaii in a couple of weeks. And I'll definitely give him your song now. And two weeks later, she writes back and says nothing about now, but she says, my dad's now a fan of United Breaks Guitars. And, uh, and he thinks that you should write a book about it because it's a great story of non-confrontation. And uh, so without ever having met Wayne, uh, a, an appointment was set up with Reed Tracy, the publisher, and I got on the phone with him at the time. And, and, and 30 minutes after explaining what was going on and uh, the story behind it, he said that if I could write a sample chapter and a book outline that they liked, that they would uh, publish me. And it was that quick. That's incredible. Yeah. And so I became a Hay House author and, uh, and uh, I got to tour with Wayne Dyer on a few speaking events with him and Cheryl Richardson and Louise Hay as the big anchor speakers. And then a whole bunch of other authors like myself that they uh, would give 20 minute segments to and I got to meet everybody and, and uh, they were a tremendous group and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. And then Wayne Dyer was doing some uh, video work. He was doing a, a film where he acted in it a little bit, but it was about the search for his father and because uh, he was adopted. And, yeah. uh, and uh, at the end of it, they decided they wanted to use my song now as the closing credits for the Wayne Dyer uh, thing. And so it was pretty incredible how that song uh, came out of, Started with Wayne with the power intention and ended up on his thing with me being a Hay House author. And so it convinced me once again that if you just put the intention out, you work hard and you, you can't control everything and every step along the way. But uh, things just sort of the seas part for you if you have the right intention. Yeah, that's incredible. It's an incredible way that that all unfolded. And like you, you say that it is, you know, that was one of the first books that I read of Wayne Dyer's was The Power of Intention mm. and loved it and a huge fan of of his work and just that the way the way he speaks and describes things. So the fact that you have gotten caught up in that, yeah. that whole, you know, your your you how your music and you becoming a hay house author, how how that all unfolded. Um because your intention in the world was what, you know, you couldn't have predicted that you were going to be a Hay House author per se, but what would you say your intention had been set for, for you? So I, I didn't even have a, I never had the intention of to become an author or to become a Hay House author. I just remember consciously thinking uh, it would be nice to, to share some of these things I'm thinking about with people and a Hay House would be a how cool would it be to be a Hay House author? Yeah. And I left, sort of left it at that. I didn't write it down as a goal or anything. And, uh, but my, my upfront intention was always to make music that made people feel better. And uh, I've always been attracted to songs like that. Like I would, I would prefer to listen to John Denver than to somebody talking about how miserable their life is and how their right. body's ability to, to metabolize hard liquor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so not a country fan <laughs> well i am a country fan but but in, in small smaller doses on those type of songs but they're yeah. but yeah i like i like music that uh yeah. some people uh might cringe at a little bit but 
I don't know. There's something about uh, the power of music and, and there's songs that um, like the song now, again, this is uh, like 15, uh, 14 years since I, I wrote that song and I'm getting messages every week and especially more now than ever from people that are saying, you know, my, I'm going through cancer. I've got stage three cancer. This is just yesterday. A man said, my daughter's got stage three cancer and she loves your song now. It's given her a lot of peace. Wow. Another woman decided to die to the song without knowing it. Uh, she asked her daughter to put the song on and they closed their eyes. And when the song was over, her mother had passed away. Wow. And, and that sort of thing is, uh, it, it reminds me of the power of music, the power of words, the power of, uh, of intention. And, and uh, I like to write hard opening music if I can. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's pretty incredible when you think about the impact that you've had on your life. And do you think about life purpose? All the time. Yep. I, I believe we're here for a limited amount of time. And and I bring this all into my storytelling and everything else that that I think our lives are a collection of a limited number of moments. There's these defining moments that it's the difference. Um, maybe the, the, the woman you spend the rest of your life with and love unconditionally uh, began with a moment where you were unsure, should I go up and say hello or should I, she'd never like me type of thing. And you actually get up and the difference is that you had the courage to say hello. And those little moments uh, are hugely uh, definitive, I think, in your life. So uh, you have to try treasure them and try and make as many as you can, knowing that there's still going to be a relatively few. Mm. I love that. And I think that's what uh, singer songwriters, storytellers, musicians like yourself are good at are capturing those small moments and because they're all things that we can relate to. Um, but we have people like you who point them out and able to sing about them and bring them to life. And um, I think that's why, you know, music connects, you know, you, you're, you're reflecting back to us the very thing we're going through. Mm. You know, so, And with um, music, I find it's with songwriting, there's a sense of urgency that you have to get the message out because you only have a finite amount of time. A, you know, a, a reasonable song is three minutes, three and a half or four, anything over four today is really long. And so you, you have a, a, a small box to get a lot into. And uh, so you have to be very economical in the way you say things. And, and, um, and yeah, I think good songwriters, they, they focus on uh, people might not notice uh, a certain aspect to a, to a scenario, but a songwriter will notice the look that one person gave when one person said something and that look says it all. Yes. And uh, you say much more just by saying it like that than you could in a few paragraphs talking about what the look meant. It was just right. the look, right? The look that said it all. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's just that, that's the power of music. Musicians are able to just say it very succinctly. And you're right, you don't have much time to impact. So it's, <laughs> you got to be quick about it. But I think that's what those best storytellers do, why we like to listen to the story of our lives, really. Yep. Um, and I've been doing a little bit more uh, research into storytelling and looking at from not just the feeling angle. I've been very led by my feeling on things and to go with go this way because it feels right or whatever. But the whole idea of storytelling and the brain chemistry and cortisol and oxytocin, uh, that those get fired up when you say something in a certain way that makes people feel something, it's it's chemically backed up. And uh, I believe that. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. There's a great how do you story how do you write songs? Do you sit down with an idea and just uh, play with the guitar? Do you write first or I write the music first typically. Um almost always. But uh, so I'll play with a riff and and 
the music evokes uh, a mood and and then just play with phrases. I'm maybe a little bit like Paul McCartney in that sense, where I, I think he he would throw sort of junk phrases in there just to fill space and see how it, it sounded together. Yeah. And uh, there's a famous story of how he wrote yesterday where he, he was using the line scrambled eggs, how I love my scrambled eggs until he came up with yesterday. Right. Yeah. And uh, I kind of do that too, but I'm, I'm uh, one of the things I'm doing and I enjoy doing is songwriting as a service. It's my sort of SAS model and uh, uh, writing songs for other people. And uh, I'm a big believer that everybody has a story and everyone has a, a valuable story to tell. If you look under the hood a little bit, everyone's got a great, uh, a great experience worth sharing. And so I'm, I've written and I'm right now I'm writing a song for someone I've never met before. It's a 75th birthday present from a son to his mother. And so I'm working with the family and getting all these stories on her and I'm getting to know her now. And I haven't, I'm not going to start playing around with the music until I get uh, a lot of information on her, but I'm trying to get to know who she is and what her values are. So I can write a song for someone in under four minutes that sort of encapsulates their life in a way that they will appreciate and everyone else will recognize. So it's a challenge. Mm But, yeah, but uh, I really like that word. When you write music, um, you know, I hear so many musicians talk about it's kind of like the music's floating in the air, and it kind of comes to me. You know, comes through me. I'm not actually creating it. Do you do you believe in that or um, feel that sentiment? Yeah, um, yeah. You can't force it, you, mm. or or I have I forced it, and so is it probably every other songwriter. And those are the songs that go nowhere right right <laughs> the ones that, that aren't, aren't, aren't the good ones but something like uh again that song now that i remember very much uh thinking about how that song was was a lot different than anything else i'd done i go to a falsetto uh thing which i'd never done in a in a song before and i and i don't remember why i did it or and i feel like i was led it was almost like try singing it this way and right and that happens or here's a line and it's like where did that line come from and so it's it's very much, I think, a process of allowing on this on the sessions, uh, songwriting sessions where I've allowed stuff to come to me rather than try and force it. It always seems to work out better. So the practice, I think, as a songwriter is to try to get into that space rather than uh, try and make it a uh, a forced uh, ego thing where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I have to come up with a good line today. No, you don't. You just have to be there when the good line comes to you and let it come. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I I almost feel like you have to go to the now. It's like we have to go arrive at the now and be in that moment. It feels like, you know, the the power is always in the present moment, it seems. It is. And and get quiet and and begin to feel or hear and be aware of what's around you. And yeah, I think photographers are the same thing. It's, you know, a lot of people just go and snap a picture, but other people wait until they're that look or that the light is right against the flower or something like that, that it, it turns something average into something meaningful. Mm, pretty powerful now, isn't it? It mm-hmm. <laughs> takes something magical. Yeah. And turn it into me- something meaningful. It's, it's pretty incredible. Well, I love that story. I didn't realize I knew you were a Hay House author and just how all that has come together for you and how that's connected um, in your life. I want to um, just chat a little bit more about, you know, your experience now as a speaker and speaking to organizations, you talk to them about customer service, because obviously you've had um, the perfect story or um, learnings from it. 
And, and you say like what you were doing, um, it wasn't really about brand bashing, you know, all of this is really around brand building because you can't control it anymore. So many people are talking about your brands. I'm just curious what you've learned about, or what do you want people to know about customer service? When you go to speak to organizations, what do you talk to them about? I think, uh, what I hope my endearing message is, isn't how to take an airline down. That's that's, right. that's often what people hire me for, I think, because they want me to be the cautionary tale to scare people into being nicer to, to people. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have other stories in my, I tell that story, but I also share the stories of people that were inspired by what I had done and uh, good customer service stories where people took the time to be uh, compassionate towards their customers and have avoided all these things and had a much less expensive uh, customer service recovery and and how amazing it is that when you have a customer who is really upset at what what you've done because they they feel like they've been disrespected, and you take adva- you um, take responsibility for that, and you apologize and you make it right, you now turn that person who is upset into your biggest brand advocate. And right. And uh, and that I guess the other thing is I've developed a uh, in the early years of me in the first say five years I was talking about the enduring lesson of United Breaks Guitars is that you and I and everybody in the world are uh, fundamentally connected with one another. And I still believe that, but I, I then evolved it and said, okay, well, if that's the truth, and I believe it is that we're fundamentally connected and we have more in common with people than we don't, then the next evolution of that to me is, well, maybe I have a responsibility to care more for other people. And how can I do that? And I, I can do that with my songs and and my talking, that sort of thing. But uh, I think that the responsibility for anyone who's in business is to be of service. I've heard other people say that before, and I believe that too. So the only way to do that and be congruent in your brand today is to be compassionate because compassion doesn't take effort. It's that sort of, it's just like a songwriting thing where you allow it. Compassion is something that it's very simple. It's got two elements. As far as I'm concerned, it's got the element to see the suffering and be aware of the suffering in someone or, or a situation and be willing to alleviate it. So it's only got two aspects. It's a verb. And uh, if you were compassionate, then uh, you would have the opportunity to change people's lives because it's not about you anymore. It's about them. And so Mm -hmm. I advocate that people uh, embrace this idea that I call compassionate design. And it's, it's got three pillars to it. Uh, I call it love, look and look again. And love is to appreciate yourself, to know that you bring something to the table and that your your value is clear and don't let anybody uh, diminish your value. The second one is to look, which is to uh, look at other people and see the, the same unique value that you have, they also have, and to get curious about who these people you're meeting are uh, and understand that they're bringing something unique and special to the table. And then the third thing is to look again, and that is to... That's maybe the hardest one, but it's to understand that we are all connected, that you bring something, that they bring something, and that uh, if you look hard enough, you will always find an aspect of yourself in the other person, whether you like them or not. And so uh, ideally, if you love and respect yourself, you will find something to love and respect in the other person as well. And that is the basis of a meaningful relationship. How do organizations respond to the word compassion? Because like you say, people might often hire you to say, we know we want to be the cautionary tale or from maybe a much more hard edged perspective. And you're talking about compassion and seeing one, one another and connecting each other. 
what are organizations' response to the word compassion? I think the knee-jerk reaction is is uncomfortableness or, or, or nervousness because they think it's going to be a woo-woo style, uh, mm. you know, ter- turn the machines off, stop production, and start hugging your partner, right? And, <laughs> and that's not what it is, it, especially in that that very first one is love and respect yourself. Uh, the, the customer isn't always right, right? I believe that saying that the customer is not always right, but the customer deserves respect, and but so do you, and so do your employees. And that sort of thing. So I think uh, if you show respect to everybody that you meet, um, you'll have the opportunity to tell your side of the story as well and find some common understanding. And again, make it much less expensive than trying to be right and um, and and win. It's not a win lose. It's it has to be a win win. And uh, and companies that approach their interactions not just with their customers but with their staff and their suppliers and the environment and like the greater good and making sure their shareholders make money. Those are the five stakeholders of every business, I think. And and if you try and find wins for all five at the same time, rather than just one, like shareholder value or, you know, uh, saving money on, on uh, employees and that sort of thing, you're, you're much, you know, much stronger position. Mm. And, and customer service is internal and external, right? It's how we treat each other and it's, you know, let alone the, the customers. And um, it, yeah, I think it's an area that, um, I, I don't know, we're living through a time right now where customer service is not fantastic, but we have other challenges that are going on. Um, so I think it is getting back to basics. And, you know, for the past year, I've probably asked people at the end of this podcast, you know, what does the world need most? And almost exclusively people have said the word love, kindness, compassion in some format. And, um, you know, I'm like, am I interviewing the only people who believe in it? Um, because it feels like, okay, we ha- we believe that, but now we have to actually bring that into, you know, action to execute on that and start actually showing it. And I think you have to practice it in advance of when you need it, because when you're in a difficult situation with somebody, sometimes people forget how, you know, to treat each other with respect. Mm-hmm. Um, so a good friend of mine, uh, Tim Brody here in Waverly, he's, uh, I wish I invented this acronym, but he's, he uses the acronym air, which is appreciation, inclusion, and respect. And that if you don't have air, you basically suffocate, right? Mm-hmm. So you need Great to bring idea. those three elements into every interaction that you have. And, uh, and so when it comes to me talking to companies, I don't lead with this idea like compassion is going, is going to change your company. I, I come in, I'm happy to tell the the cautionary tale, but I'm going to work in the compassion thing. And so hopefully by the end of it, uh, it's, it's not a hard sell for them to understand that it's a win for everybody. If you, if you care and you're congruent in your brand, it's so important to be congruent in in your brand. You can't say, I care about customers, but your employees despise working for you. So you you can't be uh, a good customer service company if you don't care about your employees or your suppliers and you're paying them in six months instead of 30 days. That sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Because so often you go into an organization, you'll see their values uh, maybe posted mm. on a wall. Yeah. And I often think, I wonder if those actually come off off the wall and into action, right? It's not just what looks good or what people say about, you know, what they think they should be in the organization, but are they actually um, being the thing that they say they want to be? Yeah. I, I spoke to a, a big, uh, really big food company in the States and they, they have their values and they live their values. But one of their values is, is, is also about being humble. And to them, that means don't tell anybody about the good deeds that you do uh, because that that's bragging. 
And I disagreed with them. Mm-hmm. I don't think they liked that I disagreed with them, but I think uh, storytelling is, is a major uh, factor. And it's not just an opportunity to promote yourself. It's a responsibility to share that and lead by example. So if you are doing things that might not uh, increase your bottom line, but you're doing it for the right reasons, you should be promoting that and, and finding a way to tell that story without sounding like you're bragging. But uh, you want the community to know, you want your employees to know that this is how you do it, right? Your people that have really good parents, uh, they learn by watching what their parents do and they're getting that story by seeing it unfold. And if you keep that to yourself, you're actually uh, making it harder uh, to the, the world, a harder place to live in. So you, I think it's the responsibility of people doing good things to share uh, the example of how to do it right. Mm. What do you think is missing from organizations based on, you know, you would have had lots of ch- uh, chats with people around the world. And like you say, in a story like that, where someone believes they should be humble and not um, tell their good deeds. What What is your sort of general feeling of things that are missing from organizations? Well, I've, I've definitely landed in the storytelling space in the last few years that I think uh, there are, are amazing stories that are going untold. And there's it's an art. Telling, mm-hmm. telling stories is an art. And uh, to the point that I think uh, some people don't even real, realize the difference between data and a story. It's, stories aren't just uh, an assembly of facts, right? There's a, there's a nuance to it and a rhythm and a cadence and, a, and an underlying message. And it's the way it's all put together and, and everything. And um, uh, companies, I think, across the board need to become better storytellers, especially in this in this environment where it's so loud and frenetic. Absolutely. Yeah. You just think about yourself, the kinds of stuff that you would respond to um, on a social media platform, right? It's those emotional ones or the way something is told. Um, and some people do it very well, but you're right. It's a very noisy space. Um, how do you get heard? And I think someone who tells a good story, um, you know, whether you're at a house party here in the East coast or someplace, the person who can tell a great story captures the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's listening. In my case, uh, with United Breaks Guitars, I didn't know what was happening. We, we touched on that. I didn't know how it would work out, and I'd never done it before, something like this. Uh, but my, my story about my broken guitar became the number one music video in the world for a month. And every musician I know that has traveled enough has had a broken guitar from an airline. And so... Uh, there's clearly something about the way I told my story that made it pop. And I've, Mm. you know, I've thought on every angle of it. So I know that part of it was, it was a new format, a new medium of social media. I was using video. I combined, I wrote a sort of a campy song that other people would have uh, avoided because it didn't work with their brand or whatever, but I didn't care. And uh, all those things made, made the difference. So the way I told my story made my story of a broken guitar uh, matter to millions of people where whereas nobody cared about all the others so that was a lesson for me that there is something to telling a, a story well mm. yeah it's a very catchy tune it's been in my head for days <laughs> <laughs> since i've been you know researching your story mm. um and yeah there is something to it and i think i think it's it's all of the elements that that work really well together and uh, you know i love the power of storytelling and in whatever format whether you just have a a few seconds in an Instagram post, it, it, it's all that power and attention. You can never figure out what is the perfect post, but I think it's this idea of, of connecting authentically with people. Um, 
and, and and that has to do with the compassion. You're right. We're all connected in some way. And I think when we tell stories, um, we connect, you know, to each other. And yeah, makes yeah sense. It, it, I get uh, inspired when I see this thing unfold. And um, when, a, when a certain song that I've written impacts people in a different way or uh, as a speaker, I did a in one week, I did a presentation where I spoke to the board of directors of, of, a, of a really big travel company, cruise company. And uh, the same week, I went to Fredericton and I spoke to kindergarten students and I gave almost the exact same presentation and they both were received equally as well. Wow. And, and so that to me, again, was another insight that uh, you'd think when you're speaking to the highest levels that you have to come up with the most uh, intelligent brain related sort of facts and, and arguments. But if you speak from the heart to the heart of everybody else, that's a universal language and you, you can impact people, uh, in the same way. It's, it's, to me, I find that really, uh, inspiring. Yeah, I, I think so. I love that, that when you speak to the heart, you know, you don't, it doesn't matter who it's a universal language. But it, you know, kindergartners to executives. Yeah, and it's not just speaking to the heart, but it has to come from yours as well. There's got to be a heart connection, mm-hmm. and and that's a feeling, right? It, and you know the difference if you're uh, there's there's people that they're not great speakers, but you're you're bowled over by by their convictions and their authenticity because they're speaking from the heart, and you never forget those things. And then there's other people that can string together uh, amazing sentences, but it's inauthentic and and you feel like you're being sold. Right. And it's always a feeling, right? You know it. It's always a feeling. I love that. Well, you have, um, you know, you have an amazing story. There's such depth um, to what, what has happened to you and your own learnings and insights. I'm so happy that you've shared them um, today. You have a new album out called until one day, and you're also jumping into uh, the children's publishing space and you have a, is it out yet? Or it's coming out shortly, Tom, the tomato plant. Yep. Tom, the tomato plant is, I have one copy. I've got the proof and the others are, they're working on them now and they'll be shipped. I I'm hoping they'll be here by late November. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's my first uh, attempt at a, at a, a children's illustrated book, but I'm bringing in that sort of belief that you can reach other people. So I wrote it with the idea that a grandparent or a parent while reading it to their kids will enjoy it the same way. And, uh, be, because it's from the heart to the heart. And, and I think, I think it works, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, and how can people get that in November? Will it be on Amazon or get it through your, um, your website, davecarolmusic.com or. Yeah. So the, the, there'll be two versions of the book. The hardcover will only be available through me. Uh, and you can go online and get the soft cover through all the other uh, vendors. And if you go through my website, you can get it through there, davecarolmusic.com. And uh, there will be little extras that come with the book uh, as well. Okay. The hard, the hardcover, if you get it through me. Yeah, well, I hope uh, that does really well for you. It's a perfect time. Christmas is coming up for all those people looking for gifts for their their grandkids or their children. Um, so, and I know you've agreed to uh, sing a song or uh, part of a song from your new album, which people can get on iTunes and Spotify and all the places that they can find music. Yeah. Um, what song have you decided to uh, play? I thought I would do uh, one off the new record called The Giant, and it sort of ties into what we were uh, speaking about today. Okay. Just stand up and get my guitar. 
off the wall. And um, yeah, I think it ties into what we were speaking about today because um, it's a, it's about maybe that first thing in the compassionate design uh, uh, the three points and uh, about self-love and appreciating who you are. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So this is Take a, it away. this is a song I wrote for my son who uh, like, like most kids, I think uh, was getting down on himself for whatever he wasn't able to do that time uh, for the first time he tried it, he wanted it perfect or whatever. And I realized that uh, when I became a dad, that the best gift I could give to my kids would be for them to know they were unconditionally loved by at least two people, his mom and dad. And uh, then I realized that as a guy who started a family late, there would be a time if things go as they're supposed to, where my son won't have his dad and maybe his mom uh, for a big chunk of his life. And that, that might be, uh, if that's all he had was unconditional love from those two people, that there would be a loss. So I thought maybe the the better situation would be for him to learn how to love himself. And then that carries with him forever. And so that's what the song is about. There's nothing you could do. There's nothing you could say cause the love I have for you to shrink or fade away there's nothing about you I've changed but one thing I regret is that you don't recognize the giant I see as a yet but I'm gonna work on you Yes, I'm gonna work so hard, so hard on you. One day you will realize the impact that you made when you look behind and see the giant footprints that remain. And you love the one you've always been without being afraid. I'll know my work is through when you see the giant in you. There's nothing more I want of you, one thing that I fear is that you may never love the face that looks back in the mirror. And I know that my words are weak, but this is where we start. And they'll take on new meaning when you know them in your heart. Cause I'm gonna work on you. Yes, I'm gonna work so hard so hard on you one day you will realize the impact that you made when you look behind and see the giant footprints that remain and you love the one you've always been without being afraid and i'll know my work is through when you know the giant in you. Mm -hmm.
nothing you could do. There's nothing you could say to cause the love I have for you to shrink or fade away. But I'm gonna work on you. Yes, I'm gonna work so hard, and one day soon you'll know the giant is you. That's awesome. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for doing that. It's beautiful. I mean, and you're right. It's a perfect song to end what we've been talking about. And um, yeah, this this conversation conversation went places I wasn't expecting today, and I I couldn't be more happy. <laughs> so, um, thank you for sharing. Uh, your story and your insight and uh, speaking from the heart. I know you'll touch uh, many people who listen to this and with that beautiful song. And I know you say on your website or one of your videos that um, you say when you're moving the needle just a little, life feels best for you. And I couldn't agree more. And thank you for helping us move the needle a little bit today. Thanks for a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dana. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at CoachDana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.